The Rewindables, the one you take to bed with you. It's a new house in your first day, but you'll wake up your favorite way. Cause with Folgers to prove, the aroma's calling you. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your car. Nothing brightens your morning like mountain-grown Folgers. Mountain-grown coffee beans have more enticing aroma and richer flavor than any other kind. That rich aromatic blend is your best morning friend. Start you out feeling good. The day goes like it should. You gotta slow down, Chris. You gotta slow way down. Did you say your name was Jim or John? Uh, well, it's both, actually. Um, teachers, when we're growing up, you know, they always say, hey, you can have this one. He's a real gem. Well, good morning from Calcutta. You get the slow way down. Full black. Women, ain't they perfect? Not always. Yes, they are. They're perfect. Don't matter if they're skinny, fat, blonde, or blue. If a woman is willing to give you her love on them, it's the greatest gift in the world. Makes you tall, makes you smart, makes you deep shine. Boy, oh boy, women are perfect. My choice for the vice presidency is Senator Dan Quayle. If you're ever lonely watching television, your troubles may soon be over. That's because finally there's a TV that talks back to you. Kind of. Interactive TV doesn't really speak, but there is a whole lot more give and take than with your average two. You have to be willing to rewatch a movie. Welcome back to the Rewindables. Chris Mendelkin, Ben Craw, cousin Christian. Guys, it's time. It's, Let's do this. We're here. It, the time is now. We are about to dive into the deep end with the Rocketeer. In the kingdom of the madness, zillions and zillions of people standing on their feet. They felt it in Tokyo, Japan. They felt it on Pluto and Saturn, yeah! Enough of that flim-flam. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the meat and potatoes, boys. All of our feelings are laid bare, <laughs> and yep. we know where we all stand, and now it's just time to, to do the work. So yeah. without further ado, we're going to hit play here on the film, and... Um, first thing that uh, catches catches your eye, you want to call some attention to. Uh, let me just back you up, Chris. You've already gone too far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, hang it on wouldn't a be an episode if you haven't gone too far. No, I'm just gotta slow down. Gotta Chris. slow down. You're going way too fast. You're already one frame into the movie. You're too far ahead. <laughs> that's that. That's how you know we're back. Um, I will say that the first thing that immediately stands out in this movie, and it actually is. On the frame count, zero, zero, zero. The the real character that I want to just talk about immediately is the Rocketeer score. I think the yes. soundtrack by James Horner immediately Horner. just evokes a warm, we fuzzy feeling. We all have feeling. the same notes. Yeah, they got, I mean, literally, I was like... Literally, the, I'm talking about James When you were like, the first character, I'm like, you mean the first character is the music? Yes, it's a, 100%. Yeah. If, we got to talk. If you hadn't said it, I would have oh, said it. Oh, thank God. Here we go. The James Horner score for this film is so magical and evocative of flying that I swear to God, you hear this song and these sounds on various films that have gone on to be popular, but like it just swells in a magical way. And James Horner's musical uh, composition for this film is unbelievable. And let's, let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, we need yeah. to break it down like piece by piece. Like... The 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 opening like sh- that shimmery kind of like sound I don't know what 
instrument that is, like what makes that. Um, obviously, there's like piano notes that begin, but before even the piano notes, it's like this. It's like the sound of like it just like literally sounds like the sound of magic. It's like glimmering, sparkling shimmers like in your ears. It just, yeah, like, I, I don't know exactly, uh, again, how you produce that sound. Um, I don't. But but I do know, I, I found a very fascinating thing while doing a little bit of research on this, which was, okay, the uh, composer Bear McCreary, who has gone on to do work like Battlestar Galactica, The Walking Dead, Lord of the Rings, Ring of Powers. He's done the soundtrack for God of War and God of War Ragnarok. In 2001, he wrote an essay I assume, presumably for college, which I found a PDF of it, called The Rocketeer and Analysis of the Film Score by James Horner. And I felt yes. that Baron McCreary <laughs> actually described this, why this music works better than I ever could. So I just wanted to read a short passage. Bear, take it Bear, away. Bear says, when music and film are combined in a way that both are expressive, rather than one completely serving another, the end result is an example of what cinema can truly achieve. And one such film is the Rocketeer. He said, James Horner composed the film's music, which is a sweeping orchestral score in the tradition of action swashbucklers of the 1930s and 40s. While the approach to the score is very traditional, elements of it stand out against typical adventure film scores. So the music in The Rocketeer is unusually energetic and dramatic. The score develops like a piece written for the concert stage. The mix of the scores versus sound effects very often favors the music, a rare occurrence for action films which tends to focus on explosions and other loud sounds to carry dramatic impact. The result mm. is that The Rocketeer is a strikingly musical movie. If this film were made today, the director would probably want simple music, ensuring that the audience would not be distracted with the dizzying computer effects. However, the film was not made with computer effects, and Horner was allowed to provide the energy for these intense sequences with orchestral score, which is basically extinct today. And this is the final thing he wrote that I thought was of interest, which he says, in the years that followed The Rocketeer, action blockbusters such as Terminator 2, Speed, or The Rock began to redefine action scores with heavy use of synthesizers and pop music influences. And that is not what you see in this film. It is orchestral. It is, mm. I think that's fascinating coming from a composer saying, that's what makes this so special. It is truly, it stands on its own and it is its own character throughout this movie. The music is there and adds so much to everything we're about to watch. Well, visiting Australia at the moment is The Adventures of the Rocketeers composer James Horner. He's a guest of the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, and he was absolutely fascinating to talk to about his role in the production of the film. The Rocketeer is a kind of a story that needs a very straight-ahead, traditional, go-get-em type score. And if I took really many chances in any direction, I'd be doing a disservice to the film. That's, a, that's the kind of a project that you have to be very careful that you, you really get just right, because it needs a certain approach. Joe Johnston, the director, he'd asked me to do the music a year and a half before the into production. I mean, because we're friends and I've known him forever, he was a special effects wizard for George Lucas right from the days when I first got started. He was editing. I knew the date I had to deliver my music. 
but I couldn't write anything because the movie was in shreds. It was editing and editing and previewing and editing and previewing. And finally, I started to write, I think, about two and a half weeks before I had to deliver all the music. And there was almost 100 minutes of music in that film. Uh, it's the kind of film it is. And, but I only had about two and a half weeks total uh, to write the music. And even while I was writing it, they made, they made picture changes because they would preview it or the studio would want to preview it for a different type of audience, a younger audience or an older audience, and they'd want to make picture changes to affect that audience. Maybe not. Look. Temper and music is vital when you play it for a studio because you're not going to get a bunch of executives sitting there in the dark watching a long movie with no music and just dialogue. You have to help the emotions of the film with music. In the case of Rocketeer, there was no music at the beginning. They put in temp music and the studio thought the sequence was too long. And they thought the sequences were too long in a bunch of places in the film. And they sort of lost track that it would be scored. And they lost confidence in the fact that it would eventually be scored. And they tend to cut the movie as though it had no music in it at all, which is a disaster because when you add the music, certain scenes that seem like they were playing okay suddenly go by way too fast because the music is like jet fuel. And as soon as you add it, it's like, boom, and the sequence is gone. And I remember having quite a few discussions with um, various people at the studio, as well as the director, begging them to just hold off editing that sequence shorter until I got done with it. Now, if they still thought it was too long, they could manicure it to any length they liked. But let me have a go. Um, and if they then thought it was too long, fine. But let me have a crack at it first. And it turned out that in most cases, once it was fully scored, and I had my chance at it, that the scene went in unchanged um, or was reconstituted back to a longer length from the preview length, which was shorter. And that's a good example, the beginning of Rocketeer, where they did have it manicured down to some short length, which was crazy. It didn't do anything for the film, but it just helped them through the preview, and then they made it longer once the music got in. So the orchestration in this film is really beautiful and whimsical and I don't know if this will mean anything to you but it weirdly reminds me of the music from the film Rudy mm. Mm. sure does anything yes. to you but for me yeah, yeah. it really evokes a certain wholesomeness and earnestness and you know that movie is set on the campus of, of, Notre, Dame, of Notre Dame and there is something about this music composed by James Horner that's like fundamentally very blue collar. And it makes sense, honestly, with what we're seeing on screen in these opening moments where these group of four mechanical engineers are, are dressed like newsboys, are dressed in khaki pants and suspenders and newsboys caps. They're wheeling out this single engine plane from a hangar. And there's something very like salt of the earth about this music and what we're seeing on screen, mm -hmm. the men mm -hmm. doing this work. Um, so there's like a lot of like symmetry and it just it just sort all sort of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna I wanna like again like 
break down the individual parts just in the very beginning, in the first few seconds. Like, so after that, the shimmery sound that kind of opens, you know, with the first uh, text that comes on screen, um, which is, I believe, a uh, a Walt Disney picture. Is yeah. that what it is? Uh, yeah, I no, already... Walt Disney Pictures. Um, Sorry, I already have notes there. Okay, okay, we can, we'll, we'll, we'll slow down. Sorry, <laughs> but just keep st- sticking to the music, sticking to the music. That piano, the first piano notes of the score that come in are so like it literally like makes me think of like like Christmas morning as like a seven year old yes. or something. It's like so nostalgic and like warm and fuzzy to the point of almost making me sad because it is like the feeling of like this nostalgia and innocence uh, that is like lost. Like it's so it's so like deeply like childlike. It's haunting. Childlike. It's haunting in a in a beautiful way though. It, I agree. Yeah. And it is the sound. Uh, it's also like very, uh, like, um, like sort of. Um, what am I trying to say? It's it's like it's very deeply American. Um, and uh, I think the the point that you were talking about, Chris, with like the kind of blue collar, like seeing these these men in like you know uh, overall uh, you know jumpsuits and stuff, like wheel this plane out. And um, this is kind of going off on a different tangent, but like the idea of like. America at this time, you know, just before World War II in Los Angeles specifically, like being almost still like the frontier, like this like farmland. And obviously we're going to talk a lot about farmland throughout the movie. Um, but the idea that even for like these like, you know, plane mechanics, they're they're basically like farmers. Like yep. <laughs> they're they're like do they're like working the land and working the sky literally uh, and like pushing like the frontier like further out um like or, or up 100%. and like explorers it's, it's, yeah. Yes. yeah yeah and then like when the sound like the first like so it starts like so soft and it's like literally i wrote my notes it sounds like a 1980s like folgers commercial Mornings are brighter with Mountain Grown Folgers because Mountain Grown Coffee has more enticing aroma than any other kind. That's the highest compliment you could give James Horner. <laughs> no, but like literally, no, like just the piano though sure. of like like something that just makes me feel so warm and fuzzy yeah. and like and like safe. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. Makes me like feel like I'm like wrapped in yeah, like a little blanket and like there's like a fire. The best part of waking up. Days looking new and 
Just the like again, it's it's so evocative of like this feeling that I can't describe because it's purely just my childhood of being yes, like, oh, I'm in like a safe, warm place. Like my parents are here, I'm protected. I'm like, uh, it's just like very, or like it also kind of made me feel. And like, this is also going to sound like a very backhanded comment, but like like a 1980 or p- possibly 84 Ronald Reagan presidential <laughs> campaign ad. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? So over the top, like syrupy. No, but like those fucking ads were so good. I'm sorry, but like they were so effective. It was a dream that built a nation. The freedom to work in the job of your choice, to reap the rewards of your labors, to leave a richer life for your children and their children beyond. Today, the dream lives again. Today, jobs are coming back. The economy is coming back. And America is coming back, standing tall in the world again. President Reagan. Rebuilding the American dream. It made you feel like you believed in America because it made you. It was just these images of like it was a you know, fairy tale. Yeah, it, like, and it, that's it, the thing. This like, movie is a fairy tale. It's an America yeah. that never actually existed. Well, I don't know. Um, Let's not go that far because I, I don't. Okay, okay, I, I okay. Will, we'll we'll, we'll get in. That's yes. that was a bold. That was that's a bold statement. Bold a statement coming, coming out. Gonna, coming out hot. Very aspirational yes. in that. Way. So aspirational. Yes. Whether it whether it ever existed or whether it's strictly like an an idea it's like yeah or like a fake memory of like a nostalgia it's like aspiring to create the idea of a world that may or may not have ever existed yes like it's it's dreaming up a world right yes yeah i do do think it's very interesting that you're bringing this up there's very much a uh a look to this film that borderlines on norman rockwell-esque that yes it it is portraying the hard-working american that is pushing something forward and like it is fascinating that in the beginning of this movie they are pushing literally this beautiful uh granville gb model r super sportster um mm-hmm. which was an air racing um uh plane uh that <laughs> was you know produced between 1932 and 1933 and i think i'm only i'm only going to mention these kinds of things every so often because I think it's really important. Uh, te- technically, the GBZ uh, first flew on August 22nd, 1931. Okay, well, the corrections are already beginning. But I think the, yes. the important um, <laughs> the important thing to note is how loving 
every scene and every item in this film really does make you feel like you're in 19... We haven't even found on, on film yet what year it is. We're going to learn it's 1938. But it does yes. paint this really everything reinforces that this is this time. They are in the valley of, of Los Angeles and it's mostly dirt fields and these men are hardworking are pushing this thing onto the airfield. And I just think, yes, it, it's a uniquely American feel and the score is Aaron Copeland-esque. It is pushing this Definitely sense, Aaron, yeah. this sense of Americana and like hardworking. And, and it's lovely. I just, the score is incredible. I yeah. just want to shout out quickly before we move on to the next thing here. Uh, Cause I know we have a lot to unpack, but just the, the font types mm. so that the first mm-hmm. credit we see is Walt Disney pictures and then Walt Disney pictures presents in the opening credits. And it's just beautiful. And then we see the, the, the film title, the rocketeer and the writing has these little thunderbolts oh, yeah. in the letters. <laughs> and it's like just perfect. There's such attention to detail with the branding. Yeah, the color of it, that kind of like, you know, golden yellow, like kind of, you know, like mustardy like mustard, yeah. but or like golden wheat fields, yeah, you know. Um uh, and also, you know, very, um, you know, Art Deco kind of Empire State Building, uh, you know, ni- I think again, this like, is all part of the same conversation as we talk about the music, but there's just like such deep, careful consideration with everything in the branding and the style and the look and the aesthetic of this movie. And whether it's the music, the costumes, the cinematography, the the font of, of the credits, uh, and the titles, it's all so picture perfect and beautiful. For my money, the opening title into film might be the best transition shot I've ever seen, which is we <laughs> see on black, Walt Disney Presents, we see on black, the Rocketeer, and the way it transitions into this is the movie is the title card becomes the barn doors opening that are all black, and we see the silhouette of these mechanics yeah. pushing the door open, and it reveals this colorful... Uh, California hangar slash landing strip area that you can immediately tell just by looking at it, we are in the past. And then on top of it, it just has this feeling to me that almost reads like the Wizard of Oz. Like we have gone from black and white to the doors open Mm, and we are just flushed with color and you're transported Mm -hmm. into this time and place. And the rest of this movie just continues to in every scene double down on that. I just am amazed and astonished how much this film transports you to another place in time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, an incredible period piece. Like there there really is no I, I never felt like disappointed as an audience member in terms of like, oh, they missed this or this didn't feel totally authentic. The the level of detail and like dedication to uh, authenticity and and like period details uh, being accurate is like so insane. And I'm going to try to point out like a lot of uh, examples of it. But there's there's like levels of of uh, like airplane and aeronautic like history um, and like plane models and stuff that I'm not personally familiar with because I'm not like you know an engineer or like an aero aeronautic uh, history buff. But uh, if you don't believe me, um, I'm going to take this. Uh, opportunity to shout out a another podcast uh called the rocketeer minute podcast uh that started up in uh in 2017 in fact i believe um in a previous episode of this podcast they may have like 
kind of like out of my ass, like said something like, oh, there's lots of like minute by minute movie podcasts out there. Like they're gimmicky. Like don't listen to them. (laughs) (laughs) There's podcasts that do like, we're going to do an entire episode on one minute of this movie, like the minute by minute podcasts. Folks, those are gimmicky. They're a dime a dozen. We don't do it like that. We don't rely on these cheap tricks. We simply talk for as long as we need to talk for. That's the only rule we live by. (laughs) Well, uh, this is a correction. Correction. Uh, This is a correction that I'm issuing right now. Um, that was inaccurate. Uh, this this podcast, Rocket Your Minute, is fucking phenomenal. It's hosted by these two guys, uh, Jim O'Kane and Hal Bryan. Um, they started up in 2017, and they went through and made an episode for every single minute of this film. Um, had a bunch of great guests on. But um, these guys are film buffs, but also um, specifically like um, aviation buffs. And one of them like worked at a, um, or, or perhaps still works at a uh, at an aviation museum in Oshkosh, uh, Wisconsin, and like really knows his shit. And would, like point out like down to like the instruments that you see in like certain shots, like during the flying sequences to be like, yeah, that's accurate. That's actually exactly like what the tachometer like would have read in that situation. Like it's mind boggling. Um, and like the number of, of like period planes and the accuracy, like, oh yeah, that plane came out, you know, it was first flown in 1935. So it totally makes sense. Like blah, blah, blah. It's, ridiculous so, um you can get so, that at another podcast don't expect it here folks <laughs> oh yeah yeah i can't or do that that's do way that. too like i mean i could but i would basically just be copying their work and it's that. like and it's so so in the weeds but there's a lot of great uh, and i'll try to like shout them out they're they're they've um i mean they've had a, a, like a, a lot of uh, awesome guests on and stuff so there's like times where i you know just through for research purposes like f- found out stuff through their podcast that I'll, I'll try to like uh credit them and shout them out when i can Remember to, um, but yeah, this is kind of a blanket shout out to those guys and their project. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just like so many things, uh, you know, whether it's like the planes or the music or the costumes or like whatever it is. Um, I like, there there are very few period films I can think of that were this devoted to actually like, like like details that no no normal person would ever even notice or care about getting those right to make it a completely like immersive authentic experience and I think, um you know, and not to again there's so many things we're going to talk about as we get along credit where yeah. credit is due this is the absolute masterwork and brainchild of Dave Stevens this yes. is a loving comic strip that was made really by a very independent uh, creative force who was this animator and illustrator in the 80s. And I think like the reason that this film is as uh, strong from its uh, historical perspective, from its accuracy to its love of a certain era, it does stem from Dave. And like we're going to probably talk about that in bits and pieces. But I think like Yes, the filmmakers serviced that end, but I think like this wouldn't be this perfect if Dave Stevens wasn't this perfectionist who was so yeah. in love with an era of of time and place and and of a of a certain vintage of of personality in American culture. Like I think like these elements are dotted throughout the film and um you know that's Yeah, you can't 
you can't fake no you can't fake it and like it's it's yeah. a credit to the filmmakers and everyone involved who helped usher his vision to become real but i think like what makes this film stand out to me as a child and right now is i'm just like this all feels like such a labor of love and i think there's no yeah. way to not feel it in the music in the costuming and the casting like everything is just like you can just feel the passion of everything of every frame oozes of like people really cared about getting this right and they yeah do and we're going to talk about it right so we're listening to this beautiful orchestral music and we see a group of engineers rolling out this plane from a hangar i want to say the design of this single engine plane is so sick it's gorgeous um yeah. I mean, my God, Ben Cousin, this thing is bumblebee yellow and black mm -hmm. Yeah, with the name of the aircraft on the tail of the plane in cursive, GB Super Sportster. Mm -hmm. And I'm instantly reminded of my childhood being a Boy Scout. And I don't know if this rings true to you guys making those model airplanes. Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. Yep. I wanted to start with some flight test plans since they're available for free online. You can download them and print them. Those model airplanes that were made from like almost like popsicle stick, like mm -hmm. flimsy, flimsy wood. And um, yeah, this single engine uh, racing aircraft truly looks like it was constructed from like, yeah, model airplane wood. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, it's the, it's, it's fascinating too. Like if you look at uh, a minute 33 is where we get our first wide shot, where we kind of get a sense of where we are. So it establishes that we are at the Bigelow Aeronautical Corp storage service hangar. Um, but I think like mm -hmm. what really, again, like this plane, you're right, Chris, beautiful bumblebee red, but like. In the background, we see era-specific cars. And it just like, this is a post-Great Depression America. Like, we're seeing mm -hmm. that these cars are ramshackle. This is a really beat-down, uh, you know, hangar. And this plane comes and, out and it may And as it's well dirt. Be a, There's no pavement anywhere. No, it's, it's just a big field. dirt field. And this plane comes out and it may as well be a spaceship. It's so beautiful. It's it's so, uh, of it feels like it's of like a different class that this thing wheels out yeah. and you're just like, my God, that's incredible. Well, I think, that, okay, so we have the the yellow plane that's coming out. We see this other really beautiful red plane. I think part of the reason that they are so stark and beautiful is because overwhelmingly the palette, the color palette of the film right now is like yellow brown khaki mm -hmm. like it mm -hmm. is we are over what we're in we are like in a world it's brown town like we're in dirt. brown town it's the it, you're in, in the gap in the 90s everything is khaki baby baby it looks like it's gonna hail you better come inside let me teach you how to drive and wheel <laughs> I think like when people think of Southern California, they have this idea of like the bright sun and these beautiful, beautiful colors in the Pacific Ocean. But this is truly like dry desert brown. Yeah. Um, we are we are in the valley and 
it is arid and it is empty fields. It's like empty bean fields and just dirt yeah. Yeah. everywhere. Again, it's like frontier land. I, it's like li- literally like this This land was just settled. I, and I will not bore you too much because I, I think this is a, worth noting because we're talking about it, which is I, I live in the valley in Los Angeles. So I went to the library in my local community to look at books and research materials that explained what this place is because it's not mm-hmm. it's honestly i remember i would argue when i first saw this as a kid i probably thought this was kansas i definitely it wasn't like los angeles like you read yeah. you look at this field and you i would argue I'm like oh it's like middle of america like middle america you definitely yeah. have this like it's a corn this should be yeah. this should be iowa but it's not it's it's los angeles which we haven't seen yet on screen but that's where we are and I think what's fascinating that I just want to bring up uh, from this book, which again, shouting out um, Kevin Roderick, who um, was a reporter for Los, I think the Los Angeles Times. He wrote this book called The San Fernando Valley, America's Suburbs. So that's where I kind of learned this information. And what's fascinating is that like um, the valley in Los Angeles in up until the early 1900s was straight up a wild place, nothing but cactus, brush, rattlesnakes, and coyotes. Basically, at most, there were train robberies going on up here, but there was nothing. And that changed when waterways were diverted to the valley, which allowed Mm. agriculture to actually allow something to happen up there. And primarily what was grown were walnuts, olives, and to a certain degree, there were orchards as well. Um, I think what's, you know, a side fact, if you have any interest in this topic, go watch the film Chinatown, which tells the story Mm. of waterway corruption in 1937, which is one year prior Mm -hmm. to the Rocketeer settings. But anyways, I think what's fascinating is this area. We just have to add Chinatown to our Rocketeer research list on Letterboxd. But I think it's important. So we're basically we um, are in the 1930s and the valley at this point is largely at this point, because of the waterway being diverted there, agriculture, and also, interestingly enough, aviation starts to hit really big in the area. And it's partially because filmmakers flocked to the valley in the 1920s because it was a perfect setting for Western films and the weather was ideal for shooting. Of the people who came up here, it was D.W. Uh, Griffiths, Cecil B. DeMille, Lionel Barrymore, and Howard Hughes. So he comes up. Oh, he comes up Howard here. Hughes. Uh, Where have I heard that name interesting before? Interesting name. So uh, hmm. the, the, the reason I'm I think telling that's you all come up this, later. it will come up. Um, but this area where this film takes place is, is truly, they basically said, I, I was basically, how likely was this to happen? So I found out that small airfields, this is from the book, uh, which was written by um, Kevin Roderick, the San Fernando Valley. He wrote, uh, small airfields had sprouted amid the orchards and tomato fields as early as 1912. The Grand Central Terminal opened in 1923 beside the river on the valley side of Glendale with an air rodeo starring a young aviatrix named Amelia Earhart. The governor of the state joined Hollywood celebrities and more than 125,000 Southland residents for the grand opening. Uh, Lindbergh came here and he surveyed the field and everybody was just... Oh, we felt so good because he said that this was an idyllic airport because it was sheltered by the mountains over there and over here. And so it was just a perfect place for an airport. So Glendale, all of Glendale felt very proud that Lindbergh had singled our airport out. 
One of the investors in the new airport was Jack Maddox, who owned a Lincoln car dealership and a Ford Trimotor passenger airplane. Jack Maddox thought a passenger airplane might be a nice supplement to his earnings as a car salesman. Standing in the lobby of the new terminal building, Amelia Earhart discusses the airline route with Mrs. Jack Maddox, perhaps hoping that her husband wouldn't give up his day job. The airline was called Transcontinental Air Transport. And as you could guess, by the name, the idea was to offer regularly scheduled passenger service coast to coast. Metropolitan Airport, the field of King Van Nuys Airport, opened in 1928, and it attracted the back aircraft company, which became Boeing, essentially. So for most, most of the century, the valley would become the center hub of aircraft design and manufacturing. It started back in the 1920s when a handful of far-sighted businessmen assembled near the same spot. All they could see were bean fields, but they envisioned something more. They would call it Los Angeles Metropolitan Airport. Their dream would be to build a master plan facility with thoughtfully laid out runways, one that would offer plenty of useful space around it, space that other far-sighted business people could use to build and maintain these winged workhorses of the future. And there'd be ample room for other savvy entrepreneurs who wanted their own businesses to take flight. Indeed, it was a real estate deal the developers hoped would lure people to the center of the San Fernando Valley. The developers unveiled the airfield on December 17, 1928, not by chance the 25th anniversary of the historic first flight of the Wright brothers. And to get the world's attention, they set up special courses for air races. Then they invited aviation pioneers, daring pilots who were already legends. Pioneers, the likes of Amelia Earhart and Pancho Barnes, came and set speed records. World speed records meant world recognition for them as well as for the airport that hosted the races. Everything was going as planned. Less than a year later, the Great Depression nearly choked the life out of the dream. So the operators of Metropolitan Airport came up with another brilliant plan. They attracted to their airport people from the one industry that was thriving, the motion picture industry. So like what's fascinating to me about this film is you look at the scene, you think it may as well be Kansas, but it's accurate. This is what was going on up here. It was like filmmaking, the Wild West filmmaking, and also some agriculture and pilots. It's crazy. <laughs> as this plane is being wheeled out, we hear the voice of a man who is presumably the chief engineer or architect or mechanic of this plane. Well, you know, keep her straight, keep her level. It's your first time up, so don't do anything interesting. Who, me? Yeah, you. And remember, she stalls out at about 100. So keep the airspeed up, otherwise you're gonna be drifting around all over the sky. And if the ailerons start to shimmy, baby, I have flown a plane or two in my life. You know? Not like this one you have, and this one's this one's a handful. You sneeze in this thing, and you can end up upside down on the bean field. And this, guys, is the voice of Ambrose Peeve Peabody, played by Alan Arkin, a man in his late fifties. He's got glasses. He's wearing coveralls, and he's warning. This other person that he's speaking to, keep her straight, keep her level, don't do anything interesting. And as the camera moves about, we see Peeve is talking to Cliff, a pilot, mm -hmm. played by Ben Billy Campbell, a tall, Billy Campbell. strapping, handsome aviator with tan leather jacket yeah. and boots. 
Yeah. Looking fly. He's looking fly. This fly boy is looking fly. I'm not prepared yet to talk about my feelings about <laughs> Billy Campbell. We're just laying out the facts. So, so I'm going to back you up a little, Chris. Just give me a moment. I'm going to back yep. you up a little bit. And let's get back to what PV, uh, Peeve, uh, as as uh, Cliff often calls him, was... Uh, and by was, the way, so both are going to... Peeve or PV, right? Peeve or PV, interchangeable. PV interchangeable. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Although it, they never actually explain how he gets the nickname PV from Peabody. I just find that kind of curious, but hey, one of the again, one of the things I love about this movie. Another thing I love about this movie is that they, there's a lot of stuff that they don't have they to don't explain. To it's just world. he goes by P. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this it's this like universe that exists and like listen, yeah. we'll tell you the stuff that you need to know it's to like, understand the plot. Lucky, but you're lucky you're even here. Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, it's a vibe. Um, so PV's telling Cliff, uh, you know, don't do anything interesting. You know, this thing, it seems like this is like a, you know, a maiden flight and it, it might be a little bit of a, you know, um, unsteady or, or unstable uh, aircraft that, that Cliff's about to climb into. PV tells him, remember, she stalls out at about 100, keep the airspeed up, otherwise you'll be drifting all over. And if the ailerons start to shimmy, uh, and then Cliff cuts him off, um, and I was like, ailerons, what is that? I don't know what an aileron is. Uh, so ailerons are the hinged surface in the trailing edge of an airplane wing. You know, those little things that flap up and down at the uh, at the end of the wing used to control lateral balance. And I was like, oh, that's cool that, that uh, you know, they're already introducing some, some real life like aviation talk. And then I started doing a little bit more research. Um, didn't go to my local library. I'll admit I, I went to Wikipedia. Um, but I, I, uh, decided to <laughs> look up good, really. the, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's my library. Um, uh, I decided to look up, you know, the, the actual plane, um, that's in this movie, which is a real plane. It's, it's, this is a, a, uh, replica version, uh, I believe, um, made in, uh, in 1978, uh, built by a guy named Bill Turner in 1978, um, uh, but based on a big, extremely faithful, uh, recreation of the, of the 1930s version of the plane. But so the plane that they're, that they're flying in, that they're about to fly in is, uh, the GB Model Z Super Sportster. Uh, and just some quick history, um, not for fun, but because it's actually relevant and, uh, ties back to what PV said, uh, to Cliff in the movie. Uh, this, this plane, uh, the GB Model Z or the GBZ, uh, first flew on August 22nd, 1931, uh, and it quickly proved to be tricky to fly, but fulfilled every expectation with regards to its speed. Uh, it was first, first flown by pilot Lowell Bales, uh, and it attained the speed of 267.34 miles per hour uh, at the National Air Races during the Shell Speed Dash qualifying on September 1, 1931. Uh, and then it went on to win uh, several other races, the Goodyear Trophy Race and the Thompson Trophy Race. Um and, uh, yeah, consistently was hit, like, hitting, you know, average speeds of, like, you know, 230 miles per hour. Um, on, the September f- on September 5th of that year, the aircraft's engineer, uh, Bob Hall, flew the GBZ to victory in the general tire and rubber trophy race, then won again the next day in a free-for-all, unofficially clocked at 314 miles per hour on a trial run. It surpassed the previous record of 278 miles per hour. Blah, 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 on December 1, 1931. Um, a further record attempt on December 5th, 1931, ended in tragedy, the aircraft suffering a failure of its right wing on its final approach. The air racer quickly rolled over several times out of control 
and crashed amid a large fireball killing Bales, that's Lowell Bales, the, the pilot. The tiny GB racer was nearly all engine and it was very difficult to handle. One pilot who flew it was the Schneider winner, Jimmy Doolittle. If you take an airplane up in the air and just set everything just right, the airplane will fly itself. The unique thing about the GB is that if you took it up in the air, no matter what you did, if you let go of it, it took over. And apparently in an effort to destroy itself, you would it. But the GB was fast. In 1931, Lowell Bales, a racing pilot, took one to challenge the speed record for land planes held by the French at 278 miles an hour. On his first attempt, he reached 281 miles an hour, but was denied the official record because the margin was not large enough. So he went out again. This time, he reached 300 miles an hour. was killed instantly. The following year, Jimmy Doolittle did break the record in the GB. He retired from racing shortly afterwards. Only three were ever built, and both the others crashed, killing their pilots. The cause of the wing's failure um, uh, was thought to be aileron flutter, that, that very same thing that PV warned Cliff about. Start to um, shimmy. He's warning him. It was theorized that the gas cap struck the pilot and incapacitated him, causing a sudden upset in pitch that led to uncontrolled flutter, flutter in the right aileron, exerting undue high vibration stress on the right wing, causing it to fail. The air racer immediately pitched up out of control. Um, Tests of an exact reproduction aircraft has have since shown that the GBZ was susceptible to aerodynamic flutter at high speeds. So this movie did its fucking did research. Its research. Um, okay. Yeah, that's insane. There's actually footage, video footage of that crash um, from 1931, that fatal crash, and it is insane. The plane literally is like flying into land, and it just like suddenly goes into this like extremely rapid like corkscrew like spinning like a top going like nose diving and then it just nose diving spinning like to the ground into the ground uh and then just explodes in a fireball that's it's like one of the most famous uh pieces of of airplane crash footage in history and uh you can find it on youtube if you're an absolute uh animal that's why pv was worried i mean i'm gonna take it a different uh tack of why i like this exchange and i and i think like chris i want to hear your opinion on this as uh, someone who's an actor who understands character because, like, again, like, I think this movie's great. The history stuff that we're going to talk about is fantastic. But ultimately, the movies, I, I think Robert Court, who we talked to uh, in our in our last podcast, said that film is a heart and groin medium. And I would argue yep. that this film works because it tugs at your heart. And at times, it hits you in the groin. Uh, Billy Campbell. Sure uh, Billy does. Campbell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think I think... This exchange, uh, and I will argue this as we continue on the podcast, I, I would say this first 10 minutes might be as close to a perfect opening 10 minutes of any film. It tells you everything you need to know yeah. without treating you like an idiot. So what I like about yep. PV and Cliff is that exchange is not that of a mechanic pilot. 
it feels like a father and son. A father who yeah. worried. This mm-hmm. is father, father, so, son. Chris, mm-hmm. what do you take from this exchange of PV and Cliff right off the top from us? Just that there's like deep admiration between these two people. That, Affection even, that, yeah. Yeah, that the father loves the son. Like, I'm just going to call it like the father loves his son. He wants his son to succeed, but also knows that his son is, um, you know, prone to taking risks. And mm-hmm. as you guys know, as as parents, like you you love your children exploring and trying new things, but you are literally terrified yeah. for any wrong thing that could ever happen to your most precious object person that you love more than anything in the whole world. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, it's just you immediately have the sense that these two people are not coworkers. These two people are people that have a mutual love for this um, aviation project, this 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 airplane project. Uh, yeah. And I would argue you don't yeah. see, uh, in general, platonic male love shown in a way that makes it feel right. And this movie nails it. PV and yeah. Cliff have a platonic male love. That, tr- yes. that I think is beautiful. And I think this movie works largely because yeah. Alan Arkin and Billy Campbell portray mm. this father-son but not father-son dynamic in a real loving way. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great point. It, it's, it's a movie that's very comfortable and leans on men being, allowing themselves to be emotionally vulnerable in front of the camera and, and with other men. And it's like... It's a real window into a possibility of an archetype, you know, for young boys, frankly, like watching this movie that it's like, oh, actually, you can be a strong man who is comfortable saying how he feels like I feel scared. I feel nervous. I feel, you know, I can talk about love and 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 wanting this and that and, and not be ashamed or, or embarrassed mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, absolutely. As a kid, if if I could choose uh, two movie characters to be my real life uh, uncle or uh, father figure, you know, in the event that I, that I didn't have a, an actual father present, uh, it would be uh, PV, uh, played by the god Alan Arkin, and then the other character, probably an obvious comparison, but Doc Brown. Right. Back to the Future. Like that's that's the other one. Uh, yeah. You know, again, pretty pretty uh, uh kind of you know two two uh, figures not, don't have to reach too far cared. it's it's it it's a mentor yeah it's a mentor that has a lot like a like a deep love for the subject yeah and also it's not weird to live with your no. uncle or your no, mentor especially if yeah. he's being shot at by iranians who <laughs> try to get their plutonium back. Boy, oh, <laughs> oh boy doc yeah. brown what have you been doing <laughs> but no pv pv's <laughs> not having those same problems and i i will say like not yet not anyway yet, as far as we know um I will yeah. say that, like, you know, Alan Arkin did an incredible body of work when he was alive. But to, oh, but to me, Incre- just I, would, a legend. I would argue this is actually... Half the reason I picked this movie is because of Alan Arkin. Um, but I, I really do think this is one of the best roles he ever portrayed. And I just, like, the way he plays it is so optimistic, hopeful, kind, caring. Like, it's just not showing the level of gruff 30s mechanic and just... I don't know. You just think, like, every one of these kinds of guys was made of steel and had, like would you know if like if like a propeller flew off and like ripped his left arm off that he would just be like pasted up or something like that's not that's what i p- perceive this guy to be but he he per- he takes it in a different angle that i think is beautiful and again it's just it, it's a credit to the character of the rocketeer and uh dave stevens personal history 
of the mentor that inspired PV, which yada, 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 we'll get into later. But I think like the dynamic between Alan Arkin and, and Cliff and PV throughout this film, the father son dynamic is the actual bedrock on why this movie works. Yeah. It really is a miracle because it's, you know, it's so, it's so tender and, and, you know, loving and caring and yet it's never maudlin or, or like corny. Um, and there's so many moments where, you know, moments that, that could be, you know, overly emotional are undercut by humor. Um, and, you know, he, he expresses his, his love and affection for Cliff in a way that he's always also kind of like jibing him a little bit and kind of, you know, like keeping him in line and, and also making fun of him and telling him when he's a jackass. Um, but it really is an incredible uh, balance that, that Arkin strikes to, to be able to like convey the fact that like, again, from scene one, you're like, oh, this guy really gives a he shit cares. about this, this other human being. He really cares, but he's also like a no nonsense, like, you know, like he's going to shoot straight with him. Um, he doesn't baby him. He doesn't, you know, try to protect him. He, he's just, you know, telling it like it is. But, you know, like, again, uh, it's just it's perfect. So PV is warning that the plane may falter if it goes over 100 miles an hour. He says, you treat her nice, Cliff. No, actually, sorry, that's under 100. If it goes under 100, it stalls out. So like oh, literally, yeah, fast that's possible. why this plane is so fucking crazy because if you if you have to take off and then rev the engine so hard until you hit a certain speed and then you have to just stay at that speed and literally the only time you can go under 100 miles per hour is when you're landing and coasting in to the landing otherwise the engine just cuts out on you Hmm. (laughs) it's fucking bananas yeah these things were death machines (laughs) but very fast you sneeze in this thing and you can end up upside down on the bean field that's fresh paint, damn it! You want me to crash? Chewing gum, you're gonna keep your butt up in the air? You treat her nice, Clifford. She's gonna take us all the way to the Nationals. Let's make some history. Yeah. You treat her nice, Clifford. She's gonna take us all the way to Nationals. Yeah, baby, Nationals. Second movie in a row that's about going to Nationals. We've done it. <laughs> we found a new connection <laughs> to the cutting edge. We're officially eligible. We're dealing with racing here. Yeah. We're dealing, we're dealing with racing. I've been waiting to to uh, determine the right time to, to drop this little bit of trivia, but um, obviously there are some some um, some some deeper parallels with the cutting edge, uh, thanks to Terry O'Quinn, who we'll get to. But but uh, one fun little bit of trivia that I found in my research. I don't know if you guys were aware of this, but I mean, at some point we'll we'll you know do a deep dive on the uh, acting background of uh, Billy Campbell. Um, but uh, and the whole like casting um, you know choice um, uh, by you know of Disney to to select him, or I guess of Joe Johnston and Disney executives to select him for the role. Um, but I'm wondering if you guys like, so it's kind of wild. Uh, this was basically Billy Campbell's first movie. He had done a lot of TV work, um, up until this point in the, uh, you know, in the sort of starting the mid eighties, I guess he was on dynasty, um, which we'll talk about again at a later point. Is there any, uh, concern on your part that, uh, you'll just get labeled Mr. Rocketeer and that it'll hinder your career down the line? Uh, I suppose that's a... That's a possibility, but uh, I'm I'm really not concerned about it <laughs> at this point. Um, 
geez, I told somebody yesterday, I think, uh, it's uh, me worrying about being stereotyped. It's, it's a bit like a, uh, a starving man going to a banquet and wor being worried about getting fat. You know, it's, <laughs> it just didn't seem like it's a, a concern right now. This was the part then that you really wanted. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I liked the script from the, from the very beginning, and it, and it got better and better as we went along. As I understand it, they really were looking <coughs> for someone that didn't already have some kind of an image. Is that true? I think that's the case. Uh, um, I've heard Joe say that, uh, Joe Johnston, the director. Um, and they got someone without any baggage. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had more baggage. <laughs> As an actor, Bill, what is your background? You've done TV, haven't you? Yes, um, I've done uh, TV exclusively till now. Um, um, a couple of series uh, and various episodes of of different different series. What would people maybe associate you with? Uh, dynasty, perhaps, crime story, um, a dynasty or crime story. And Dynasty you played? I played Stephen Carrington's boyfriend. And for how many seasons did you do that? I played for half a season, half a season. Was that a good experience? It was a fine experience. It was a wonderful experience. I was, uh, I was, uh, um, yeah, it was terrific. There were, you know, I was just starting out. Uh, and I was still, uh, you know, uh, nervous a good deal of the time in front of the camera. Not that I'm not that I'm not now. <laughs> uh, but I was, you know, I was I was sort of getting my feet and tr and trying to get comfortable with this this huge black, you know, contraption that sort of hangs over your shoulder when you're trying to be as natural as you can. And uh, and it was it was it allowed me to do that. You know, I was working with a. a a bunch of people that have worked for years and years in the, in the business. Um, so it was, uh, I suppose, a, a, a real learning experience. Uh, just prior to being uh, cast as the titular character in The Rocketeer, um, Billy Campbell, a 30-year-old actor, was working at a Renaissance fair. He was working at a Renaissance fair. You um, gotta love that story. You gotta love it for for ten dollars a show, uh, playing the role of Petruchio in this little William Shakespeare play called "The Taming of the Shrew." <laughs> oh my God! We live in a simulation. Is this is a simulation. Correct. Uh, <laughs> that's uncanny. If you don't believe me, uh, I can. Pull up uh, the May special issue oh, of Preview, uh, May 1991 <laughs> special issue of Preview Magazine. Uh, just give me one you second here. On eBay late at night. Stop. <laughs> um, let's see. During early development, Kevin Costner and Matthew Modine had been the writer's top choices to play protagonist Cliff Secord, whom they styled in the all-American mold of Jimmy Stewart and Gary Cooper. The eight-week casting call drew more than... 600 C-Cord wannabes, including Johnny Depp, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Bill Paxton, and Emilio Estevez. Among the throng was also a long-haired, goateed, 30-year-old actor, fresh from performing as Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew at a local Renaissance fair, a job paying a whopping 10 bucks a bow. 
Um, and I have this was uh, this would have been I guess in like early 1990. Um, I think uh, auditions were were in like May 1990. Um, Long haired with a goatee. Yes. Yeah, and I have in fact confirmed this because I found. Uh, pictures on Getty Images of the Living History Center presents the 29th annual Renaissance Pleasure Fair at Glen Helen Regional Park in San Bernardino, California. And there are no fewer than five, no, six images of Billy Campbell uh, playing Petruchio in a, at a Renaissance Fair uh, totally. performance of The Taming of the Shrew. I have a little bit of interesting fun fact to add to this because I kind of knew bits and pieces of the story, but not the full story. Um, what was fascinating is that basically Billy Campbell went in to audition for the part. He did not impress them. He basically walked in with the long hair, the goatee, and he said, which he walked in, auditioned, and left, didn't wow. make a dent. He went back to the Renaissance Fair, continued to do his job, and then while that was happening, he picked up an issue of The Rocketeer, the comic. Now, I read on, uh, online, and, and tell me if this is true or not, Bill, um, you saw the book and you were like, I'm going to cut my hair like the character. And that got you in the room. They're like, he looks like Cliff. Yeah, I read the... I, I was working at the Renaissance Fair at the time, and I, I, I <laughs> wasn't... <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about uh, my career so much, and I had long hair and a beard, and, and uh, I think the first time I walked into the room with Joe and those guys, I hadn't even bothered to shave or cut my hair. And um, uh, it went away, and I think they tested everybody in town, and, and in the meanwhile, I happened on the comic book, and I couldn't believe how much I thought the guy looked like me, but of course he looks like Dave, because Dave. Dave drew himself, and Dave and I look like brothers. So by that point, I was really anxious to work. I didn't want to work at the Renaissance Fair for the rest of my life. and uh, So I cut my hair and I shaved my beard and I remember the day that I walked in for the screen test. I walked through the door of the stage and Joe was standing right at the craft service table and he looked up. <laughs> when I thought I had a chance to get the job, Joe looked up and he went... <laughs> he did a complete double take and I thought, oh, I have a chance. He picked up an issue of The Rocketeer, the comic. He hadn't done that before, read it, and was like, oh my God, I look identical to this character slash Dave Stevens. He ended up cutting mm -hmm. his hair, shaving his beard, went back into a screen test for an actual like in-character test. And it was when he walked in, everyone just looked at him and was like, that's that's The Rocketeer. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's just like such a lovely, the fact that he was doing 10 bucks a a show is so fitting to what we are going to talk about in this film too because that is literally what Cliff yeah. Secord is dealing with in his own life 10 bucks a yep. show he's a hustler he's a grinder which means that Billy Campbell um, was getting the same rate in 1990 as Cliff Secord in 1938 for 10 bucks <laughs> yeah, a show that is yeah. wild yeah and also, just in case the connection is lost on anyone, as a reminder, uh, The Cutting Edge is The Taming of the Shrew on ice, yes. uh, according to its writer, Tony Cowley. Yeah, I thought that was pretty, pretty fun. Incredible. Incredible research. Smile, point. You have to be willing to rewatch a movie. Slowly, slowly, slowly. 